0: Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, and, you know, eventually we'll get through this book, but there are so many things to cover, and of course we we could have covered many more things, and it taken us longer to get to where we're at. Uh, but, you know, you try to keep things reasonable as far as time frames are concerned but there are so many things and so many ways to consider it and to come from different angles and so forth and so right now we're kind of at a place where i really don't know how that is going to proceed forward you know i have the old baptist outline you know and it's alliterated and um you know it all has uh, like let's see like 1. The Fraudulent Persuasion. Almost sounds like Perry Mason uh, episode, right? The Fraudulent Persuasion. Um, And then we have um, the Falsifying Persecution. And then I forget what the last one actually is because I became so diverted away from uh, what I'm actually intending to do. But I think it's the, uh, the, not the purposeful, but the uh, freeing purpose or something like that. But uh, we have been considering these things here in Galatians 5 as we look at this letter to the churches of Galatia, and we are looking at it coming from this understanding of what Paul is addressing and why is because the gospel is being perverted. And so we've looked at several things, and now we're here in Galatians chapter 5 where we're going to eventually look at the right use of the law for Christians. So Paul has opposed the wrong use of the law in the first four chapters, and now he's going to instruct them in the right use. Of course, there are always preliminary things that have to be addressed, and uh, there's always side issues, and so Paul is still doing that here as we're transitioning over to looking at the right use of the law Uh, for Christians. And so he says in verse 7, again, as he goes back basically to the same thought process in which he began this letter, you ran well, who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind. But he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Some translations say, I wish that they would emasculate themselves for you brethren have been called to liberty only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another for all the law is fulfilled in one word even in this you shall love your neighbor as yourself but if you bite and devour one another beware lest you be consumed by one another so we're in verses 11 through 12 and, of course, that's the fascinating part, because Paul is basically, in verse 12, making an analogy. You know, the whole conversation's been about circumcision. Remember, because the Judaizers were like, listen, they were telling these Gentile Christians, if you want to be a true Christian, if you, be a, if you truly want to be saved, then you have to be circumcised in a religious context. You have to be circumcised as well. Well, Paul is opposing that because Paul preaches justification by faith alone. The Judaizers are preaching justification plus works. Or, or excuse me, they're, they're preaching, I'm sorry, I'm all messed up. They're preaching faith plus works equals justification. And that's a very important distinguishing point and understanding. Paul is saying faith alone for justification They're saying faith plus your works, your own righteousness, and your own merits for justification. So he makes this analogy because the conversation is about circumcision, right? And so some translations will say, I wish they would circumcise themselves. I wish they would cut themselves off. I wish they would emasculate themselves. So what he does is it's a play on words. It was kind of sarcastic in a sense, but he means everything that he says. So we've considered the first part of our passage in considering the fraudulent persuasion and that they ran well, but then they became disobedient. Disobedient to the truth. And so on the negative side, we see their disobedience, and Paul's pointing out their disobedience, that they were hindered from obeying the truth, and that he also points out that they were corrupted. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. This fraudulent persuasion coming from the false brethren that we would call Judaizers, meaning those who said that you had to become a Jew. In order to be saved. So this persuasion wasn't coming. Uh, that was coming from the false brethren. The purpose of it was to turn them away from obedience to disobedience. And yet they used a deceptive tactic. That seemed to call them to obedience to the law. Right? Right? Isn't that the gist? Well, hey, you know, this faith alone thing, there has to be more than that. There has to be some works involved. There has to be obedience to the law. You see, they're coming at it saying as if they're promoting obedience to the law. But Paul says that they're turning them from the truth to disobey the truth. In other words, turning them to disobedience. Peter described certain libertines as promising liberty while they themselves are the slaves of corruption. It usually goes hand in hand. And this is the way it is with both libertines and legalists. Their disposition is rebellion, which always produces disobedience. On the positive side, we see their past history of obedience. They ran well. We see Paul's confidence. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind. In other words, he was confident that they would not fully be shipwrecked and that they would turn back to the truth and they would turn back to obedience. And so based upon the past Persuasion of the Gentiles in that they ran well, were once obedient, and that this present persuasion was not the persuasion of Christ who calls them. Paul is confident in the Lord that they will not be fully persuaded against the truth. Obviously, Paul does not indicate the degree of each persuasion. It may be some, it may be many, it may be most in either direction, but he is confident of this one thing, that the church... And the true body of Christ will remain and continue. It may be a remnant, it may be a multitude, but Paul is confident that the calling of Christ will be effectual to complete the work that has begun and cause them to will and to do after God's good pleasure. And that is what I believe. Whether it's in relation to our particular church here or the church at large in America. It may be a remnant, it may be a multitude, but Christ and his church will be victorious and it will march on. All the other kingdoms of this earth will be shaken and there will only be one kingdom that is left standing in the very end and that is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It may be a remnant right now, but it don't matter because there's something coming. And yes, in our own power and in our flesh and in our might, we may not be anything for this world. I mean, we may not be much of a resistance effort. But God is going to cause the kingdoms of this world to shake by shaking the earth and cause them to crumble. And so that is why preachers preach the word, by the way. Remember what Paul tells Timothy to be instant, in season and out of season, to be faithful when things are going well, to be faithful when things are going poorly. Because that's not how we can look at things. We are to live by faith, faith in Christ. And so my faith in Christ is that he has been granted all power and all authority in heaven and on earth. And because my faith is in him, whether it's going good or whether it's going poorly, whether it's popular or unpopular, my role, my job, my commission is to preach the word and to be faithful in preaching the word. And so our confidence should be in the Lord and not in man's wisdom or with the motivation of self-interest or self-benefit. And this is why Paul's letter to the Galatians is, in our estimation, disjointed. He's been going back and forth with doctrine and application and with some good old-fashioned confrontation. And we neglect to see that Paul was dealing with the same old sins in his day as we do today. Paul's authority was being questioned. Paul was condemned by the snowflakes of the Greco-Roman world as being mean. Remember one time he tells the Corinthians... Okay, what what do you have then? You want me to come to you with a rod? Or do you want me to come to you in love? So Paul was accused of being mean. Paul was accused of being hard to understand. You know, and we're not saying that these things are not true. As a matter of fact, Peter <laughs> Peter agrees with those who were complaining about Paul being hard to be understood, right? Peter's like, yeah, (laughs) Paul is hard to understand. Difficult. And, you know, in over 20 years of ministry, I have seen in the ministry of other people and I have experienced in my own ministry that the same stuff is just repeated over and over and over and over again. And it's funny how when the more you preach the word, the more your authority is always questioned. Is anyone ever I mean, is anyone ever really questioning the authority of Joel Olstein? Has anyone ever seen that? No. I mean, literally, some of these guys get away with murder. Well, maybe not quite murder, even though James McDonald <laughs> threatened it. But maybe not murder, but they get away with everything else, right? I mean, Ted Haggard just came out again about his homosexuality and drug use. How many times do we have to do this? And no one, still no one today is questioning his authority. None. They're still flocking to his church. It's astounding, right? But it's simple, really. And this is what helps keep us and should keep everything in perspective not only should it keep pastors with a proper perspective but it should keep you with the proper perspective in dealing with this world and that is it's very simple it helps keep things in perspective and yes they may hate me yes they may hate you but the reason why they hate us is because they hate christ and his word that's where the opposition comes from. You can stir up a lot of opposition by all, all you have to do is just proclaim the word. And, and it's really rather easy. You know, when, during the month of June, all you got to do is just not say not any of your own words, not say a word, just quote Leviticus 19, And all of a sudden, people will go batty, right? They'll be all over you. They'll be going crazy and nuts. Go to Romans 1. Why? Because, you see, the real opposition and the real hatred is against Christ and His Word. So that should help keep us in the right perspective. Knowing and understanding. Understanding that it's really not so much us, but Christ in us. Because if Christ wasn't in us, they'd actually love us because we'd be of their father, the devil, as well. So when I preach about faith being faithful and church attendance, faithful in giving, faithful in serving the church, and so on, the real issue is always in any opposition to those things, is God. It is God to whom we have to do. He's the one that we're going to stand and give an account to. Therefore, our job is to faithfully proclaim the Word and to faithfully apply it into our hearts and lives and live out the Word in this world. So whenever I or someone else preaches about loving Christ and the brethren, not being a gossip, a whisperer, a backbiter, a schismatic, or one who sows discord among the brethren, it is God with whom we have to do. When I'm accused of being hard to understand, it is God with whom we have to do. And really, actually, most of my preaching is simple, right? if you can remember the word repent, and you can go forth from this place and understand exactly what I'm saying. Repent. We must preach the word, God's standard. That we've all fallen short of his glory in our sins and transgressions against his word. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not hard to understand, but it is hard when one is defiant against the word of God. And besides, if you or I went to our professor, or to maybe one of our high school teachers, because of our low grade, we huff into that office, we look at the professor And we tell him that our low grade was because he was hard to understand. First of all, do we really think that that's the standard? But he might also point out that it would be helpful if we attended class. If we actually opened our textbook and followed along. If we took notes, if we paid attention, if we studied. And so... My preaching goes back and forth in this dance routine, which is something you will find in the epistles as well. It's kind of like this awkward dance that's going on. It's awkward dance of preaching the word by reproving, rebuking, and exhorting with all long suffering and doctrine. It's this awkward dance. Indeed, in this methodology found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, within the context of reproving, rebuking, and exhorting, is a call to urgency. Which is another thing that we are so resistant to. Once again, we are going to find in the falsifying persecution in verses 11 and 12, Paul demonstrating this motivation of urgency. This is urgent. This is life and death. It is so urgent that I wish that those who were hindering you and troubling you that they would emasculate themselves. That's how urgent it is. As with all things, though there's this tricky nature to persecution. Paul cites it here in verse number 11. Because false brethren are tricky. They will use the idea of persecution in either direction at a moment's notice. Just as they will use your words for their advantage at a moment's notice. That's, that's All this stuff's going on here with the false brethren and with Paul in his dealings with the Galatians. You see, if it is to their advantage, they will slanderously tell everyone how you agree with them... Or said something that proves you agree with them. And then turn right around and condemn you because you said something that was false and you're wrong. You're right, you're wrong, you're right, you're wrong. And that's what's going on here. They were trying to say, these false brethren were saying, well this is what Paul preaches. What we're declaring to you is exactly what Paul believes. Paul agrees with us. And so Paul says, if I preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? Oh yeah, that Paul. That, that, that Paul believes exactly the way we do. And that's the way they do with even the persecution. Because they're saying Paul agrees with them, but then they're persecuting Paul. And they're they're tricky, though. It's any means necessary. They are quick to accuse and to persecute, and then quick to claim persecution. In other words, Paul was dealing with Greco-Roman snowflakes. Postmoderns. In a pre modern world. <laughs> and such is the case here in Galatia. The false brethren condemn Paul as a false apostle, but then they use Paul's authority as an apostle to advance their falsehoods as if they could have it both ways. It's rather confusing in dealing with these people, right? So notice, and I, brethren, if I still preach persecution, why do I, if if I still preach circumcision, sorry, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. What Paul is saying here is that if he is preaching circumcision, which is one of the claims by the false brethren, then why is he suffering persecution? And if he is suffering persecution for preaching circumcision, then the offenses of the cross have ceased. Therefore, he's not suffering for the gospel, and he's not suffering for the cross, which means it's no longer then about the gospel. Notice first that the false brethren, even though they do not accept Paul's authority, they were going around convincing others that Paul agreed with them. And most conversations that you have nowadays with anyone, and especially depending upon what you do. So with pastors, this is definitely true, that with most Most conversations that pastors have with Christians and all conversations that I have with non-Christians is really about their attempt to get them to agree with or me to agree with them. That's what it's all about. The whole conversation. Now, they're not using reason or persuasion, but... Assumption, because they're really not looking for an explanation. As soon as you try start trying to explain something, then you know the conversation just goes in a million different directions, and it's because that that's not what they're they're looking for. They're just looking for a little statement to say, right? So it's just all assumption, and they and. If it goes unchallenged, then they will justify their opinions or actions to others by then using whomever as their justification, even though they do not accept their authority in any other area. You see, it's really all about today. It's all about justifying ourselves. Paul is calling them on their assumption. If I am preaching circumcision in agreement with the Judaizers, then Why am I suffering persecution by the circumcisers? Why then are they opposed to me? Why then will they not accept my authority? Why then will they not do what I said? Because it's the same thing that our Lord told us. What do you call me, Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? It's the same old thing it just keeps getting repeated over and over and over and over and over again because of our depraved nature our fallenness our sinfulness truly solomon wrote in proverbs 18:17 the first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him this is why no one wants to discuss reason or examine today it is gone as a matter of fact, the postmoderns say that there's no such thing. These are the intellectuals in our society, that there's no such thing as reason, there's no and then there, then there's no reason to discuss things. But this is what Paul is doing, and he's forcing the Galatians to do, to examine these things seriously. To them, the Judaizers came along and presented their case, and it's like, oh, that that sounds good. That really sounds good. I really like that. I really like the way that the Judaizers bring the Old Testament and the New Testament together. It seemed right, but Paul is examining their claims, and he's been doing this from... Galatians 1, verse 1, till now. He's examining their claims and showing them that they are incorrect. Paul is correcting them. And this is why at Paul's sedition trial in Acts chapter 24, he says in verse 13, Nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. (laughs) Paul is declaring the falsehood of the Judaizers claim and then makes the following imprecatory statement. We might could say it's an imprecatory prayer. I mean, he does say, I wish. But at the very least, he says an imprecatory statement, which is, I wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Calvin talks a lot about this in relation to some people claiming that this just seems out of character for a Christian seems out of character for Paul, who calls upon us to love one another and to walk in love and in charity and in unity and in peace. And then he makes this statement. Well, he's wanting them to be cut off because he knows that they are tearing the church apart because they are trying to cut off others from the church to cut off others from Christ and Paul understands that this is urgent that this is important and so it doesn't it's not opposed to the highest plateau of love because what is the highest form of love Jesus Tells the lawyer in Matthew 22, when he is asked which is the greatest commandment in the law, Jesus says to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. First and foremost, no ifs, ands, or buts. And then the second, Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice there is a first and a second. And the first does take priority. So Paul had the highest view of God, the highest view of Christ, the highest view of the church, and because of his love for God, wished that these false teachers would be cut off for the love of truth and for the love of the church. Because of his love for God and his love for man, he wished them to be cut off. Paul had an urgency here because their false doctrine and practices will separate others from God. And to be separated from God is eternal damnation. Paul knows that to be in disobedience to God is to bring temporal and eternal punishment upon yourself and those whom you influence or deceive... Which, by the way, temporal and eternal punishment is not your best now life, uh, best life now or later. But Paul knows that to be outside of the church is to be outside of grace, to be cut off from the gospel. And so he has this urgency, which would cause him to react so strongly to their falsehood. John Calvin said, beyond the pale of the church, no forgiveness of sins, no salvation can be hoped for. In the great Protestant confession, the Belgic confession, it states, we believe since this holy congregation is an assembly of those who are saved and that out of it there is no salvation, that no person of whatsoever state or condition he may be ought to withdraw himself to live in a separate state from it, but that all men are in duty bound to join and unite themselves with it, maintaining the unity of the church Submitting themselves to the doctrine and discipline of the church, bowing their necks under the yoke of Jesus Christ, and as mutual members of the same body, serving to the edification of the brethren according to the talents that God has given them. And that this may be more effectually observed, it is the duty of all believers, according to the word of God, to separate themselves from all those who do not belong to the church and to join themselves to this congregation wheresoever God. God hath established it, even though the magistrates and edicts of princes were against it; yea, they should, uh, though they should suffer death or any other corporal punishment. Therefore, all those who separate themselves from the same or do not join themselves to it act contrary to the ordinance of God. Pretty strong statement. Paul wishes that these false teachers would cut themselves off so that the Galatians might be saved. Their salvation is at stake. Because it is of most urgency. The eternal state of their souls depend upon it. The Galatians did not see the urgency... But all throughout this letter, Paul continues to demonstrate the urgency of the matter. Do we really approach anything today understanding the urgency of the matter? When we come into the presence of God, do we understand the urgency of the matter? When we are called upon to humble ourselves and to repent... And to believe in Christ, do we really see the urgency of the matter? Well, I did that once. And right now, I'm not going to do it because I got this little sin I'm holding on to that I'm kind of enjoying right now. So I already did it once, and I'll do it again in the future. Do we not understand the urgency? Paul does not want the gospel to be hindered because he knows that only in the gospel is the power of salvation, which is why he says that he's not ashamed of it. As a matter of fact, that's what the Belgic Confession is calling upon us not to be ashamed of it, that we would unite with it even if the governing power said, you can't do that. Even if it was under threat of death, the Belgic Confession says, That if we withdraw from the church, we damn ourselves, even under threat from the civil magistrate. That's serious. That's urgent. So Paul wasn't ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it was the power of God into salvation to whoever believes. That's why he went everywhere preaching it, no matter what. The Pharisees said, no matter what the Judaizers said, no matter what the Romans said. Because their souls were at stake. That's why he suffered all kinds of hardship and he willingly did it. Think of all the hardship that he willingly suffered the reason why he ministered without pay. It's the reason why he was beaten. It's the reason why he was imprisoned and finally beheaded. Why? For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the salvation of sinners, for the sake of the exaltation and glory of Christ. This is why he would say in chapter 1 that if we even himself, if, if I or any of the other apostles or an angel from heaven preaches any other gospel unto you, than that which we have preached unto you, let him be damned. It's one thing to damn your own soul. But Paul here is fighting for the souls of those who would be deceived by a false gospel. Paul was fighting not only for initial reception, for the initial reception of the gospel, but fighting for them to continue in the gospel, because, Paul wrote to the Colossians, that it had pleased the Father that in Christ all fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, and by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, and you who were once enlightened and enemies in your mind by wicked works yet now has he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight if if indeed you continue in the faith grounded and settled, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven. If. Paul doesn't want to know, did you do it once? He wants to know, are you doing it? And the problem today is that there's not enough urgency. And the reason why there's not enough urgency, because there's no fear of God. We believe, we can do as we please, and it will be okay not realizing that we are opposed to and rejecting the gospel. So Paul understands this, and so he understands, as he explained to the Thessalonians, that he was bold to speak unto them the gospel of God with much contention. Humble yourselves, repent, believe on Christ. Those are contentious words. And it's the words that we repeat over and over and over and over again. That is how, that is how wicked our hearts are. That is how powerful our flesh is. That is how deceptive the devil is. Is because the only way that we make it, the only way is through much contention. So we are to preach in confrontation and tell you in great heaviness, but with great hope. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land even as James talks about the adulterers and adulteresses and those who have friendship with the world and are at enmity or who have a hatred of God, that he gives more grace. Yes, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It's contentious and hopeful. Therefore, we are to submit to God, resist the devil, cleanse our hands and purify our hearts and not be double minded anymore by humbling ourselves in the sight of the Lord. We are told to let us search and try our ways and turn again unto the Lord to lift up our heart with our hands unto God in heaven. We are told that he that covers his sins shall not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy. We are told, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. We are told the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. We are told, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. We are told to remember from where we are fallen and repent and do the first works, or else Christ will come unto us quickly and remove our candlestick out of his place, except we repent. We are told, Repent, or else I will come unto you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. We are told, These things saith the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last more than the first. You see, there's this emphasis about repentance. It's a matter of urgency. The Lord said to Israel, through the prophet Ezekiel, As I live, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn. Turn from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? You see, this is the thinking that Paul has. It's that urgent. It's a matter of life or death. And because he has that urgency, he says, I wish that those who are troubling you, those who are leading you down the road to hell, those who are damning your soul, Those who are making you disobedient to the word of God, I wish they would be cut off so that you might live. It's that urgent. When we see all the deception and all the things being crammed down our kids' throats today, it's that urgent. When we see all the stuff throughout social media and throughout all the media platforms, it's that urgent when we see all the rebellion, abominations going on throughout our land, it is that urgent. It's life or death. Father, we know that in the midst of life we are in death. And that's true in so many ways. We pray that you would help us to see the urgency Not only of the hour, but that we would see the urgency of the issues and see the urgency for which why we must humble ourselves, pray, and incline ourselves to you and turn from our wicked ways. Because there is no salvation. outside of our surrender completely and wholly to you. We can't give you a little and hold back the greater part. No, you demand complete 100% allegiance and surrender, submission. We pray that in the hardness of our hearts, or even in the deception that we face in this world. That we would not be so full of pride, that we would not yield ourselves to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.